pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray uh, one more time before we jump into this passage. Heavenly Father, we do ask that um, as we open up to one of the most uh, intimate, vulnerable, um, and darkest hours of Jesus' life, um, that, uh, that you would guide us uh, through this, this moment and through this text, that uh, you would show us just how good and kind and loving and gracious you've been to us. I pray that um, the eyes of our hearts would be open to receive the gospel and that, um, yeah, you would strengthen our faith and really nourish us this morning as we look at your word. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, one of the privileges of being a pastor is that people actually give me, because of my role, because of my position, access into very intimate and very personal and very vulnerable parts of their life. Um, not only do I get the honor of officiating weddings and baptisms and funerals, these, these kind of um, key moments in people's lives, I mean, I get to be right there. I get, to, I get front row seats. But... Um, I've also found myself in hospital rooms in moments of great joy and great grief. I found myself sitting across the table from college students who have believed their whole lives and now are having these moments of doubt, and it's deeply scary and vulnerable, and they don't quite know what to do. I've, I've heard confessions of sin and um, the guilt and the fear of what that will mean. These are all special moments. I mean, um, some of them are happy, some are sad, some are tragic, but they're all special because it's not a small thing to invite someone into those intimate moments, those personal, vulnerable parts of your life. It's a real gift. But, I mean, you don't have to be a pastor to know what that's like. I'm sure you have been given access to these kinds of moments in your own life. Um, maybe a friend sharing something with you that they haven't shared with anybody else. Maybe giving care to an aging parent or nurturing a small child. Um, Or maybe sitting with a friend as they weep over a tragedy in their life. See, it's a gift to be given access into these moments in other people's lives. Not because um, they're comfortable or easy moments, They're not, but because as much as we try to present ourselves to the world as strong and competent and put together, we're all fragile. We're all um, fragile. Even the most successful among us, that's just part of what it means to be a human being. We're fragile creatures, and letting someone into those moments of fear and need and weakness, it's actually an invitation to intimacy and to love. Uh, What are some of the most private, meaningful moments that you have had the honor of sharing with someone? Think back on your own life. In our passage this morning, 
Jesus gives us access to one of the most intimate, fearful, and darkest hours of his life. It's not the public, politicized execution that'll happen in a few hours um, when he dies on a cross in front of a jeering crowd. This moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's quiet, it's private, it's intimate, and it's filled with his own turmoil and his own fear. This is, in some way, holy ground that we're going to walk onto this morning as we look, on, look at this passage. Before we even look at the text and see what it teaches us, though, I mean, just consider this about the heart of God. Take a moment to consider that God himself would invite us into this moment in his life, right? I mean, the fact that God even has a moment like this is astounding, that he's broken, full of agony, but then the fact that he's willing to invite disciples in and through those disciples invite us in to this moment of vulnerability, it's a real gift, And in this passage, there are real gifts for us this morning, if we have the eyes to see them. I want to look at this in three parts. The agony that Jesus feels, the cup that Jesus drinks, and then the prayer that Jesus prays. Each is going to give us a deeper understanding and a deeper connection with him, to know him more. And I think each also offers a real gift, real resources for our own walk of faith in this world. So, we're going to start with... The agony that Jesus feels. Uh, We're working our way through Jesus' life through the book of Mark. We've been kind of tracking his ministry, and we've come to the final week of his life. He's going to die on the cross in in just a few hours after this event, this story. And this story begins as his disciples leave the meal that they shared together. We talked about that last week, the last Passover meal that they share. And they walk across the valley, and they go to, um, verse 32 tells us, they went to a place called Gethsemane. This was likely a private olive garden that someone owned um, on the Mount of Olives, which is the hill across the valley from the Temple Mount. So they'd be overlooking the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It could have been owned by a wealthy follower of Jesus who kind of gave them access to his garden after their meal on this night. But it's also fitting because Gethsemane means oil press. They probably made olive oil there. But it's also the place in Jesus' life, the hour in Jesus' life, where he was the most pressed, the most pressured. So this fits. Jesus asks his disciples to stay put a while, and he goes deeper into the garden to pray. But he invites Peter, James, and John with him. Now, these three have been his closest followers throughout his whole ministry. It was these three that he also invited up on the Mount of Transfiguration, that moment in his earthly life where his glory was most clearly seen. And now it's the same three that are invited into his darkest hour and his most fearful and vulnerable moment in his earthly life. We read, starting in verse 33, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, that this hour might pass from him. The language used here, it's not used anywhere else of Jesus in the Gospels. This is a unique moment in his entire life. Greatly distressed can mean astonished. This is like a shocking feeling. Uh, Troubled is, is overcome with horror. This has been and could be translated grieved and agitated, anguished and dismayed. It can even mean depressed and confused. 
See, Jesus falls to the ground, and as he prays that this hour might pass from him, he's weeping. He's a physical mess. His physical posture reflects his emotional and his spiritual posture. He's weak. He's in grief. He's feeling bewildered. He's stunned. He's at a loss for what to do. The Gospel of Luke, whose author was a doctor and would have keyed in on these kinds of things, even tells us that Jesus, as he prayed, um, he began to sweat drops of blood. He was in such intense agony and fear. This is a dark place Jesus is in, okay? This is incredibly intimate and vulnerable. What do you make of this? I mean, what do you make of a Jesus who is this overwhelmed or this broken? I mean, part of me wants to say, I hope this is okay to say, like, what's the deal, Jesus? I mean, you're supposed to be the one who's strong. You're our savior. You're supposed to be the one who's our hero and stays strong when everybody else is weak, right? You're supposed to be the one who stands when all the rest of us crumble. That's kind of why we're looking to you, right? That's kind of why you're our guy, because we expect you to be the one who stands up when all the rest of us crumble. But here we see that Jesus is the one crumbling. He's the one that's falling to the ground. And I think what's so important for us to see in this passage, in fact, one of the main reasons Jesus was kind enough to give us such intimate access to this moment in his life is that there is a world of hope for us in the fact that Jesus crumbles like this in the garden before to his death. Listen to the author of Hebrews. This is from Hebrews 2. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered with the tempted, because Jesus suffered, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. Do you hear the good news in this moment of agony for Jesus? Because Jesus has been to the depths of whatever suffering and whatever difficulty or fear you and I will ever experience in our lives, he's able to help us exactly where we need him to help us the most. When we're afraid, Jesus has been afraid too, deeply afraid. So afraid he he sweated blood. Now I've been afraid, even deeply afraid, but I've never been that afraid. Jesus has been. And he is with us in that fear. He's there with us in the anxiety and the confusion and the paralysis of that. When we're in the the pits of depression and it feels like someone just kind of flipped off the lights of our emotional life um, and our inner life, Jesus has been there too. He knows the numbness. He knows the emptiness. He knows the dark. And he can help us in those moments. When we're grieving or suffering or in pain, Jesus is in that moment with us in ways that no one else is able to join us. He empathizes. He understands. He suffers alongside us. See, part of the gift of the intimate access that the Garden of Gethsemane shows us is that in these moments, these are not the moments that God has forsaken us. The darkest moments of our life when we're tempted to think, oh, this is where God leaves me. This is actually the place where Jesus is maybe the closest to you that he will be in your entire life. He's been there with you, and he goes there 
with you. I mean, do you ever wish that you could tell someone how you feel, what your experience has been like, and they understood? Not say that they understood, not try to understand, but like really understand to the depths of what you're going through in your life. I mean, I think this in some way is the real power of a lot of recovery groups, whether it's grief or addiction or trauma. Until you've been through something like that, you just can't really know what it's like to sit with someone who's been through something like that. And being around others like that who can actually know and share your experience is part of the healing process from those experiences. The agony of Jesus in Gethsemane Excuse me. tells us that whatever you've been through or whatever you will be through, Jesus has too. And he's with you and he understands and he hears you and he knows you and he's there to heal you. That's a gift. Okay, the intimacy of this moment that Jesus gives us, the agony that he experiences in the garden, it's a gift. But as comforting as this is, there's something curious about it too, kind of strange even. And as Jesus was facing death, he agonized. Okay, that makes sense. We get that. That's to be expected. As he's looking into the eyes of death, he crumbles, except that there have been many people through history who have looked into the eyes of death, and seemingly they do it with more poise and more calm and more courage even than Jesus seems to here. I mean, there have been many Christians who have died apparently better deaths than Jesus dies here as they look to Jesus as their hope and their strength, even as they face the end. I mean, this is all through church history. Ignatius was a second century bishop. He was being transferred to Rome for execution by the Roman government. And he wrote ahead on his trip to a local church in Rome saying, please don't intervene unless they rob me of the opportunity to die on behalf of my Savior. Okay, he was telling them to stop intervention so that he could die for the sake of Christ. Polycarp in 155, another early church father, was an 86-year-old man. He refused to deny Christ as the Roman government um, was persecuting Christians at the time. He was to be burned at the stake. They asked for his final words. And he said, O Father, I bless you that you have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of the martyrs. Two English guys, uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were burned at the stake in Oxford, England in 1555. And when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer turned to his friend and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never See, these Christians looked death in the face, and they found their strength in the very words that Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I mean, they believed those words, and they believed it to the death. Did these martyrs die in Jesus' name better than Jesus himself died? I mean, did Jesus talk a better game than he was able to walk at the end of his own life? Or, or, is there something so unique about Jesus' death that no other death in human history is like it? I mean, something that would make his burden uniquely fearful, uniquely 
devastating, uniquely filled with agony. There is a lot that we can relate to in Jesus' darkest hour here. And it's actually a real gift that he was willing to go into that place so that when we find ourselves in that place, we know that we're not alone, ever alone. But there's also something in this moment before his death that's totally unique to Jesus, that no other human has ever experienced in their life and never will, something that made him stagger under the weight of it. What is it? Well, we learn what it is in this prayer that he prayed to his father. In verse 36, uh, one of the most famous prayers in the Bible, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Incredible prayer. We're going to come to the, at the end of the sermon, we'll circle back around and look at the prayer for just a minute together. But what I want us to ask now is, what was in the cup? I mean, what was Jesus staring at that made him stagger under the weight of what he was about to go through? What did he fear so much in his death that makes it unique in all of human history? It wasn't just the death and the pain that went with it. That was brutal. But Jesus stared into a cup that was deeper and darker even than that. He saw two things in that cup um, that made him stagger under the weight of it. First of all, Jesus saw a world of sin in that cup. Okay, Sin is a lot of things. The Bible talks about sin in a lot of different ways. But one thing that sin is, is an injury. Okay, Sin is an injury. It injures the person who sinned against. It injures the sinner. We know both sides of this story. So when we are sinned against, when we are cheated or lied to or gossiped about or excluded or belittled, made to feel small, we feel it. Sometimes we physically feel it. It feels like an injury. Uh, We may try to prevent that injury from ever happening again by disregarding that person or by building a wall so that sort of thing can never happen again to us. We'll never open ourselves up to that kind of vulnerability. Or we might try to get even by hurting them back, right? Even the score. Or we might forgive and bear the injury of that sin without trying to inflict it on the person who gave it to us. But no matter how you respond to sin... Being sinned against is an injury, and sinning is an injury. We all know that feeling of guilt and shame when we say that we um, we say what we promised we would never say, or we do the thing that we promised we would never do again, and it's like a wound that we carry. It can heal. That's the promise of the gospel. God will heal those wounds, but they're still wounds. Sinning and being sinned against are injuries, and when Jesus looks into that cup that he would have to drink when he went to the cross. In a few hours' time, he saw a world of sin that he would have to bear, and the injury of it all would fall on him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him, God made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who knew no sin through his perfect earthly life, became sin. He, he bore the injury and the guilt and the shame of it all, and not just for one person either, but for the sin of an entire world. I mean, the injury, you guys know this, the injury of being sinned against or sinning can be devastating in a person's life. Um, imagine staring into the kind of carnage of all the sins throughout human history of all people. I mean, Jesus is staring into the cup, and he sees 
the killing fields in Cambodia. He sees the concentration camps in Germany. He sees the modern-day international sex slavery trade that preys upon young girls and young boys who are never given any other option in life. He sees the pride and the greed that churns in our hearts. He sees the hurtful words that we sling around at one another. He sees the selfish ambition that causes us to see others as a means to an end and not a dignified, beautiful end in and of themselves. Jesus stares into the cup and he saw the injury and the damage of a world of sin. And um, that's his unique burden to bear and he recoils from it in kind of agony and horror. He doesn't want that kind of injury on his own soul. But he doesn't just see a world of sin. He also sees God's righteous, loving, just response to that sin. He also sees in that cup a world of wrath. The the cup throughout the Bible is this image used to describe the wrath of God that he pours out into his rebellious and sinful creation. So Isaiah in the Old Testament refers to the cup in an act of mercy from God. He says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, um, the bowl of my wrath that you should drink it no more. In a prophecy of final judgment at the end, in Revelation 14, we read, He will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angel. These are not the kind of verses we go to in the morning in our quiet time for encouragement. Okay, This is not where we want to start our day, but they're there, right? I mean, the Bible talks about God's wrath. What this cup that Jesus is staring into in the garden that night communicates throughout the Bible is God's consistent Total opposition to the sin that is destroying what he loves. You see, justice and his judgment, it's not a character characteristic that contradicts his love and his mercy. It's actually a characteristic that flows out of his love and his great mercy. God will destroy what destroys what he loves. God will destroy what destroys what he loves. Anyone who has ever deeply loved another person would say the same thing. But when Jesus stares into that cup, he sees not only the injury that sin causes, but God's loving and just response to that sin, his steady opposition to the sin that destroys those he loves, and it makes him stagger in agony. And the reason he does is because he has never in his life, Jesus has never in his life until this moment, been opposed to his Father in anything. Okay? Okay? From all eternity, all Jesus has known is perfectly loving, honoring, other-centered, glorifying love. And now, to save a rebellious people, he finds himself opposed to the most treasured love for the very first time. And it breaks his heart. And this is the unique thing that Jesus has to bear as he goes to the cross. I mean, remember when he does die on the cross, he cries out. In agony, he cries out. But what does he cry out about? Do you remember? He doesn't cry out because he's been abandoned by all his friends, even though that's true. He doesn't cry out because he's been betrayed, even though that's true. He doesn't even cry out in pain that's recorded in the Bible. The reason he cries out from the cross is when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
See, Jesus is staring into a cup of, of God-forsakenness, and he's never had to experience that through all eternity. And there's only one reason Jesus would even possibly consider drinking what's in that cup. The sin, the world of sin, the world of wrath, the only reason he would ever consider bringing it to his lips is because he loved someone so much that he was willing to go through all that that entailed. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us, sitting in this room, us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. You see, he did all of this for us. He had us in mind as he stared into the cup in that garden. Jesus was begging for an alternate plan, but there wasn't one. There couldn't be one. Only the exchange of his perfect life for our sinful one could secure his people back into his love. Only this path of grace could both satisfy the deep justice of God and the deep love of God at the same time. This cup, this cross, it was the only way, and Jesus drank it to the bottom for us. You see, what makes Jesus' death unique among all deaths, even among the great Christian martyrs of, of throughout church history, is that his death is what makes Christianity truly unique as well. If his was just an ordinary death, then our life would just be an ordinary life. See, we would still be here trying to figure out how to deal with that sin, how to deal with that wrath, how to make meaning out of our life, how to justify our existence. But if his death really did accomplish everything that he claims that it has accomplished, then not only is it a path through God's justice into love, but it is a path into the very relationship that makes our life work. This was the only way Jesus could have brought his people back home to be with him and his Father in heaven forever. In the agony Jesus felt, we have great comfort because we can know we're never alone, no matter what we encounter. In the cup that Jesus drank, we have even greater comfort because he has secured us in his family love forever. And lastly, very briefly, in the prayer that Jesus prays, we see a model and an encouragement for how to approach this God who loves us this deeply and is this committed to our good. It's interesting. About half of this whole passage um, is spent by Jesus encouraging his own disciples to pray. Okay? He goes back to him three times. He's like, guys, wake up. It's time to pray right now. Okay, This is not nap time. This is prayer time. But they can't figure it out. They keep falling asleep. They're too weak. They're too tired. Jesus, um, it's amazing, actually. Jesus is staring into the cup that he is going to have to bear for these very people who can't stay awake to pray for him. And he's still going out of his way to teach them how to pray. This is Jesus still discipling and loving and bringing his followers along, even in some of their worst moments that they have. And he is teaching them how to grow up in the ways of faith. And he's teaching us too. What he does is he models humble, submissive, yet faithful and brave prayer. When he prays, he finds courage and hope as he looks to God, and he tells us to do the same. He starts his prayer in verse 36 by saying, Abba, Father. He's showing us that this kind of prayer is intimate. 
It's family talk. It's relationship talk. He already knows he's loved and loves God. He addresses the one that he knows cares for him with an eternal love. And then he says, take this cup from me. What this is, is it's honest talk, okay? Prayer is honest talk. Jesus is praying his deepest longings and his desires to God. He didn't worry what it sounded like. This is not exactly theologically orthodox. He may be questioning God's salvation plan, okay? It's a little disconcerting. Jesus, our Savior, is questioning God's salvation plan, okay? But the point is, he doesn't worry how it sounds. These are the deepest longings of his heart, and he speaks them honestly to a loving father. And then he goes on to say, but not my will, but yours be done. See, at the very same time that he prays his heart to God, he doesn't demand that things go his way or doubt God's goodness and love if it doesn't happen. He asks for correction and asks that God send him wherever he sends him, knowing God is good and sovereign and always in control. See, this kind of prayer, relationally safe, bravely honest, ultimately reliant and trustful, This is the center of walking with God through life. I mean, this is where our connection comes from. He says in verse 38 to his disciples, Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Like Jesus, we don't pray our best prayers out of our strength, but out of our weakness when we need him the most. This is the prayer we need when we do find ourselves in the darkest hours of our life. This is the prayer we need when we do sin against the holy and the righteous God, knowing we deserve his opposition and his justice, but trusting that Jesus has covered our sins and granted us his righteousness in return. This is the prayer we need when we believe his promises and don't believe his promises at the same time. I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is What this is is a strong prayer of weakness. Okay, this is a strong prayer of weakness, and this is the center of walking with God through this life. And it's yet another gift that Jesus gives us in this passage. Agony, a cup, and a prayer. It's one of the most intimate moments in Jesus' entire life. And he invites us into it to receive these gifts that he knows we need as a resource to follow him through this life. So receive them. Let let these deepen your relationship with Jesus today. Receive these gifts, his agony, his cup, and his prayer as we look to our Savior for all these gifts. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, enduring what you endured on our behalf. There's no way any of us can claim we deserve what you did for us. Um, We all stand needy and sinful before you, but out of a great love that we can't even comprehend, you endured the cross so that we can be brought back home to be with you. I pray that these these truths of grace and love and acceptance would, would settle in deep in our bones, God, that we would look to you and we would know how loved and safe we are in your care. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Help our hearts grow big to trust you in all these things. We ask this in your name. Amen.